Lord, we thank you that you're here and with us. Would you give us time now simply uh, sitting with you at your feet? Bless you, Lord. Amen. So, friends, in the liturgical calendar of the church year, we come to the last Sunday. We come to the end. Today is Christ the King Sunday. Christ the King Sunday is, oddly maybe, not only the last Sunday of the church year, but it's also the most recent, or in that sense, the last or the latest thing to be added. Anybody want to anybody guess when Christ the King Sunday was added to the ancient liturgical calendar? Anybody? All right. Who, who's before 500 A.D.? Who says before 500? We got one vote for that. Who says before 1,000? We got, we got a couple going for that. Before the Reformation. Oh, my word. Who thinks it was added yesterday? <laughs> right? You're not that far off, actually. It was added in 1925, which is basically 100 years ago, which is odd, isn't it, for the liturgical calendar of all this ancient stuff. Christ the King Sunday was added in 1925 because, in this case, I think it was the Catholic Church took the lead, was the sense, they were feeling the sense of Western culture pulling away from the faith. And so they decided we're going to put it in at the end of the year that everyone's going to acknowledge and proclaim that Jesus is the King. I, I love Christ the King Sunday. I love the idea. It's all true that he is the King. I'm not quite sure making people say so once a year works, but I, but I, I get the feeling, right? I get the desire. We'll put it that way. How does Jesus himself understand himself to have established himself as king? In Jesus' mind, what did he do that establishes him as king? What is the way of Jesus to establish a reign as king? We, we see it in our gospel lesson this morning. Jesus is at the table with his core group, his core followers, his core friends. And he knows that it will be the last time around. So we came to call it the Last Supper. He knows that that's coming. And Luke tells us when the hour came, Jesus took his place, the apostles joined him, and he said to them in a typical Jesus sentence, three big things loaded into one sentence, I have earnestly desired, that's the first one, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Before I suffer. So this is, this is a, a loaded sentence. Jesus on his cross is going to say, one of the famous seven last words, he's going to say, I thirst. And I think the Catholic faith is completely right to understand those words spiritually, mystically. Jesus knows that he's dying. He doesn't really want a sponge of bad wine. It isn't going to make a difference. He's not literally saying, I need something to drink. He's crying out, saying, I am fulfilling my mission because I long and I thirst and I desire that people should see me. He had said, when I am lifted up, I will be glorified like a king. And he longed that people would acknowledge him. And he knew that there was something in his giving of himself to death 
that would lead people's hearts to be broken and to respond. Martin Luther King Jr., in a famous sermon he gave, he quoted Napoleon. He said, one day as Napoleon came toward the end of his career and looked back across the years, that same Napoleon stood back and he said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have built great empires, but upon what did they depend? They depended upon force. But long ago, Jesus started an empire that depended on love. And even to this day, millions will die for him. So Jesus says, I I deeply long to get on with it. I deeply long to go and complete the Passover. He's sitting at a Passover meal. The Passover, of course, recalls when the Lord God looked down and saw his people in slavery and he remembered them and he brought them out of slavery, gave them an identity as a people and gave them a future and a hope. And Jesus is doing Passover Exodus and completing it, fulfilling it, doing it completely. And the way that he does it is through his redemptive suffering and self-giving love. One of the amazing things about the Christian faith and the, and the Jewish faith and the Hebrew scriptures is the unique proclamation in the super ancient, ancient world that the human being is created in the image of God. And there's all kinds of discussion about what does this mean? How do we figure out what the essence of the image of God is? I've, I've, been, I've been warping my head lately for one of my classes reading Hans Urs von Balthasar who you know I love, but who is just like the Dickens hard to read. And I've been reading his work on Maximus the Confessor. I mean, if you just want to warp your head good, right? Try reading that crazy smart dude talking about that ancient crazy smart dude. And I promise you, you can, you can warp your head on that. And I've been warping my head on this and it's been so, so good. And the reason that it's been so, so good is that Maximus believed to the point of death. He literally became martyred. He believed to the point of death that Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And he believed that it was written in a mysterious way, which we get hints of this in Scripture, but we don't talk about it much because it's, it's really more than we can get our head around. That it was written in before the creation even began that the incarnation and the cross and the resurrection would happen that Jesus, the same one who spoke all things into being, the word who spoke all things into being, spoke it into being knowing that this moment would come. And so he says, I'm ready to get to it. I'm ready to complete the Passover. I'm ready to get on with the suffering before I suffer. It doesn't mean he's looking forward to it. He's just ready, you know? He's ready to, to get it done and to move through this and to get to that next place. And so then he gives them a hint. Do this stuff because I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to drink of this again until the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, which is one of those crazy statements that means both once he's died and resurrected because in a sense it is finished, he's done it, but also looks ultimately to the full end when he returns in glory and it's all made full and consummated fully. So then Jesus gives them what? He gives them basically this. He gives them a memorial of himself that is like super memorial. 
I was taught growing up that the Lord's Supper, as we called it, is a remembrance. And it certainly is. It certainly is a remembrance. It's, it's like remembrance, not minimalist, but maximalist. I knew a, a wise bishop, a wise bishop who would counsel people well in terms of wrestling through their past hurts. And one of his ways of talking with people was, stop remembering it. And I said, well, that's lovely. Thank you for that. I'd love to forget it. You got a magic pill for that? He said, no, no, no. He said, stop taking the member and sticking it back on yourself. Stop attaching the member to yourself. Let it go. Let it pass away. We are remembering Jesus in the best sense. We are remembering ourselves in his body. We are renewing again, membering ourselves as part of the people who trust him and lean on him and count on him. And we are once again, membering, taking a notice of his body and how he gave his body to suffer, his members, his whole self, how he gave it to suffer on our behalf. In the Eucharist, we are very much remembering him. We're also representing him. We are presenting him again. Paul says, once again, we remember, we represent, we present what he has done and who he has been and who and how he has died. There's a lovely thing that the theologians tell us that in the Eucharist, we see Christ present in the past in the sense of what he did and who he was. We find Christ present in the present, both in receiving his body and his blood and also in ourselves and in each other as his living body on earth. And we proclaim and look forward to his body returning in glory. We in the Eucharist celebrate, remember, represent Jesus, past, present, and future. And we are renewed in the sense of who we are as his people. How does Jesus become king? Jesus in his own mind becomes king when he says, I long to eat this with you because it's the Passover before I suffer. Jesus somehow becomes king by suffering. And when Jesus suffers, he embraces the hardest thing for us over the centuries of the church and just any given day, the hardest thing for us to embrace, redemptive suffering. Nobody wants to sign up for that. But Jesus told us that we would walk in that if we follow him. That is deep mysticism, but it's also just simple logic. If he walked in that and we follow him, then we will walk in that because he did and we follow him. There's deep mysticism, thank goodness, but on the other hand, it's just simple. It's just sort of duh. It's sort of like that's the way that works. When Jesus walked voluntarily into his suffering, he released into the world the only thing that you get more of when you give more of. Love. Self-giving love. 
The more of it we give, the more of it we get. The more of it we give, the more it grows and lives and matures and is wonderful. The more of it we give, the super abundantly more it becomes. When we come to this table, friends, Jesus is here. He's with us. He's giving us himself. He's saying, I want to remember myself to you. I want to have been represented to you. I want to be with you and in you. I long and thirst to walk with you. And that's what he's doing when we come here to receive him. Let's pray. I just invite you to just to sit with the Lord and either ask him to let you be aware that he is present or just sit with him if you already sense that.